Hey, this is Randy Robinson, and I'm the pastor of Everyday Church. Thanks so much for joining us today. We hope this podcast encourages you, stretches your faith, and helps lead you into a growing relationship with Jesus. Let's do it. jump in today. Uh, let me give you a quick review. We've spent the last three weeks talking about making room, and we have looked at uh, people from the Old Testament uh, who literally built onto their homes. Uh, the Shunammite woman built a room, an additional room in her house to make room for the prophet of God, uh, symbolic really of the presence of the Lord. And then we looked at the New Testament story of Zacchaeus, um, how he gave away half of his income when he met Jesus. He was making room. He was so full of himself and so full of wealth and pursuing those. He gave half of it away, plus four times whatever he had stolen. He was like, I'm making room for Jesus in my life. And last week, we made a comparison between making room and preparation. We said that those two are sort of closely, uh, tightly knit together. And we said that making room and preparation are really acts of expectation. Because when you're expecting something, you prepare for it. When you're expecting God to do something, you make room for it. Whatever is going on, if you're expecting company, you make room for the company. You prepare for the company. We talked about babies. When you're expecting a baby, man, you don't wait until the day before that he or she's coming and you're like, oh, we don't have a crib. Like, that's, it's too late. They're coming. So you make room. You prepare as they're coming. We spent considerable time in 2 Kings 3 where the Lord promised to give water to the armies of Israel and those fighting with them. I'm not going to recap the whole story. It's an amazing story. And a few people have pointed out to me, hey, we kind of stopped short of the full story. Go and read it by yourself. Because uh, <laughs> that's what the Bible's for. And if, you'd only, if you're only eating and reading your word on Sunday, then you are severely malnourished spiritually. So uh, go and read it. Anyway, 2 Kings 3, 16, this is the promise. And he says, and, the, and he said, thus says the Lord, make this valley full of ditches. For thus says the Lord, you shall not see wind, nor shall you see rain. Yet the valley shall be filled with water so that you, your cattle and your animals may drink. God promises them that they, they're going to, he's going to provide water. But his instruction to them was for them to first dig ditches, not one or two or just a few. He said, fill this valley full of ditches. And that's our, that's our mandate from the Lord. We all want the promise. We all want the blessing. We all want the miracle. And God's saying, dig a ditch. Make room for what I want to pour out in your life. He has blessing and favor and resources and healing that he wants to provide for us. But often we've dug no ditches. In other words, there's no space. There's no room to contain what God wants to do. So in essence, we have tied the hands of the Lord. How can we expect God to pour out his fullness when we refuse to dig a ditch or to prepare for what he wants to do? So today... Uh, as we move forward in this Make Room series, I'm going to speak on a topic that very few of us are going to like, um, including myself. And before I tell you what it is, I want to read two verses from Paul's letter to the first century church in a place called Philippi, which would now be considered modern-day northeastern Greece. Uh, Paul wrote this letter from prison. It's uh, in the book of Philippians. And over uh, the course of this four-chapter letter, he talks about joy or mentions joy or being joyful in one form or another 16 times. 
And so the heaviness of part of this verse almost seems out of place in a way. But in Philippians chapter 3, he says, I want to know Christ. How many of you would say, yes, I want to know Christ? He says, yes, to know the power of his resurrection. We all certainly want to know that. And then he says, and participation in his sufferings. Can I get an amen there? (laughs) Becoming like him in his death. And so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. So today I'm going to speak on the topic of making room for pain. Um, not, not exciting. Uh, Mark Clark, pastor and author, uh, in his book, The Problem of God, says this. Every worldview, even the classic skepticism of atheism and agnosticism, needs to provide an answer to the questions of evil and suffering. You can't shrug it away. If you're a skeptic, what's your answer? What's the answer if you're a Hindu, a Muslim, or a Buddhist? This is not just a Christian question. Each of us must wrestle it to the ground and see if our worldview holds up under its weight. Look, this is a bit of a blanket statement, and it's based a lot, um, you know, mostly on my own life experience and opinion. But the circles that I've been around personally seem to fall into one of two camps. One is that suffering, all suffering is evil. It should be avoided at all costs. And if you are suffering, there's likely sin, doubt, or unbelief, or lack of faith in your life. The other side of the coin seems to be more of a doctrine of suffering. That all suffering is from God, and therefore all suffering should be embraced. And the more you suffer, the closer to God you are. There's these two opposing viewpoints. When I was a kid, I went to a private Christian school, and... uh, they were heavy on rules. There was a lot of you know, do's and don'ts and a lot of, you know, you have to do this, do that. Hair has to be a certain way, those kinds of things. And there was, a, there was one teacher's aide who I remember, this was elementary school, I remember her being and seeming sad all of the time. Um, I don't remember her seeing, uh, seeing her smile very much, if ever. Um, if she did, it was very, very rare. And I remember asking her one time as an elementary student, hey, could I tell you a joke? And she said, no which hindsight was probably a good idea. Uh, In elementary school, my jokes weren't near as good as they are today. So, uh. But she said something to me that I, I never forgot, and it brought a lot of confusion in my life at that moment. But she said to me, no, because joking is telling jokes and joking is a sin. And then she said, she quoted a scripture from Ephesians that said that, the, you know, the Bible says there should be no coarse jesting or coarse joking. Now, again, I was a kid and I don't remember all of the everything that happened, you know, verbatim. But I do remember thinking, just being confused and thinking, this is really weird. Looking back as an adult, I feel sorry for this lady who missed out on a lifetime of laughter and joy because she apparently felt that the more she suffered, the closer to God she was. So there's this, these, these two opposing viewpoints. And we talk about balance a lot here at Everyday Church because balance is important. There's balance to be had here. There are truths on each side of the coin. But because these two philosophies seem to be in direct opposition to each other, there's very little overlap. So instead of a balanced, healthy outlook, we end up believing partial truths. 
And then because of these partial truths, when suffering or loss or pain happens in our lives, going back to Mark Clark's quote, our worldview can't hold up under its weight. And that's why when people go through tragedy, they just can't. They say, I'm done. I'm done with God. I can't deal with this because if God was good, how could he allow this to happen? I think the church does a disservice to people when we don't talk about difficult subjects, topics that are difficult to understand. And let me say, I certainly don't have this completely figured out. And just like you, I, don't, I have no interest in suffering. I'm not interested in that. I don't want to experience loss. I don't want to experience grief. But the truth of the matter is, we are all going to experience it. In light of that, I want to make room for the pain in my life to speak to me. What might God be saying to me in the midst of my pain, in the midst of my struggle? While my natural self wants to avoid pain as much as possible, my spiritual self wants to tune in and lean into what God might be saying. I mean, part of the reason that pain is so powerful is that it just, it can't be ignored. It can't be ignored. Is anyone uh, familiar with the concept of love languages? Dr. Uh, Gary Chapman wrote uh, a book called The Five Love Languages. Show of hands. Who's heard of that before? Who's never heard of it? You need to get it, especially if you're married. It'll it'll change your life. Uh, He talks about, in the book, The Five Love Languages, he lists five primary love languages. One is words of affirmation. Two is quality time. Three, gifts or gift giving. Four, acts of service. And five, physical touch. And he breaks it down through the book and he says that how most of us, almost everyone, speaks love in one of these five love languages. You can be bilingual and speak in multiple, but all of us have a primary love language. And so he says that we tend to show and give love the way that we want it to be shown or given to us. So... It would be like marrying someone who only speaks Spanish and you only speak English. <laughs> Lou speaks his own language, period. I don't know. He's <laughs> Spanish, English, Spanglish. Like, I don't know what he speaks. <laughs> How many else speaks? Maybe I'll speak Spanglish. Nobody. Okay, nobody knows what I'm talking about. You see, that's why the lady didn't let me tell her a joke when I was in elementary school. <laughs> Okay, so if you marry someone and you only you spoke no Spanish whatsoever and they spoke no English, it would be very difficult to communicate verbally, I love you, right? So if I say to you in English, I love you, you understand what that means. If I said to you, te amo, mi amigo, some of you are, I mean, your context clues are, I said I love you, my friend. But Lewis probably understood that. I maybe even said it incorrectly. But unless you speak the other language, you can't communicate clearly love. Does that that make sense? So it would be similar to if you, back to the the, the five love languages, if your love language was gifts, it doesn't have to be extravagant extravagant gifts. It could be bringing your favorite candy bar home from, you know, from the store on your way home from work while you're at the gas station. That extra thing to go in and grab something for your loved one and then to give that to them, right? So let's say that I speak gift giving and my wife speaks words of affirmation. All right, again, like English and Spanish, they don't really overlap. And unless we learn to speak each other's language, we'll constantly feel unloved. So if I come home and I've got her a Snickers because I want, that's her favorite you know, candy bar or whatever, and I'm giving her gifts, I'm expressing love, 
but she doesn't hear it because what she wants to hear when I come home is, babe, the house looks great. You did a good job cleaning the house. It looks fantastic. You look beautiful today. I'm so proud. This dinner was so good. She wants to hear words of affirmation, right? So I'm giving her gifts. And I was like, I love you. Here's the gift. And she's like, I don't get it. I need you to tell me whatever. And she's all the time, you look great. You look I'm like, I just want you to buy me a Snickers. Like, <laughs> okay, enough of the five love languages. Similarly, in his book called Whisper, and we talked about this a couple of years ago, Mark Batterson says that God has seven primary love languages. He breaks them down similar to Dr. Gary Chapman in regards to communicating with God. He says that they are scripture, desires, doors, dreams, pain, prompting, I mean promptings, and then pain. And again, why is pain so important? It's because we can't, you can't ignore it. You can ignore all of the other love languages as Mark Batterson describes them. Right? We can ignore promptings. We do that all the time. You feel a prompting from the Holy Spirit and you're like, I'm just not going to do that. I don't feel it. You know, I, don't feel like, I don't feel like stopping the service and let the drums play. I'm going to ignore that prompting. You know, that would have been easy for, for me to do at that moment. Right? Or we can ignore Scripture. Like you can either, you know, you don't have to, uh, you don't have to read it. You don't have to do what it says. Uh, you can ignore people, like some of you have been doing to me since we started. Right? You can ignore whatever, but you cannot ignore pain. So what if God is trying to speak to us through our pain and through our difficult circumstances? If we embrace the idea that pain is to be avoided at all costs, then we miss what God is trying to say. So instead of making room for God to speak through the pain in our lives, our sole focus will be to eliminate the pain as quickly as possible. Now look, again, I don't even like talking about this. And I'm certainly not trying to invite pain into my life. Like, the oh, don't pray for patience because then you'll have trials and tribulations. I'm not trying to invite that into my life. But my prayer is, even in the midst of our family and health situation with Katie, my prayer is, okay, God, bring healing. But I'm asking, God, what are you trying to say? What are you trying to reveal? What are you wanting to speak to us through this? Came across a verse of scripture in my devotions this week in Genesis 25, 21. It was Isaac, uh, was the son of Abraham. And it said Isaac prayed on behalf of his wife. His wife was childless, and Isaac prayed for her that she would conceive, and she God healed her, and she was healed. I mean, she she conceived. And so I, I was encouraged to do the same for Katie, to begin to pray for her, not for kids, because we have enough of those. Uh, but but to pray on her behalf. And when I research the word behalf, what it means is to get in front of. See, I believe wholeheartedly that sickness is an attack of the enemy. It's not a gift from God. Right? So I'm praying on Katie's behalf. I'm spiritually and prophetically positioning myself in front of her. And I'm asking God to move, believing that he is going to bring complete healing. But in my pursuit of the relief of the pain, I'm careful not to dis- dismiss the voice of the Lord. God, what are you saying to me through this? What are you saying to my family? What are you saying to us? I'm trying to make room for the pain so that God can speak through the situation. I mean, let's be honest. Like, I, I, don't, I don't know what I would do if this was life-threatening. My hope is that my faith would be just as strong, that I would fight just as hard on behalf of my wife, that I would still embrace the season of suffering and say, God, speak to me. Help me to strip away my self-dependence, realizing there's nothing that I can do that you have to take over in this situation. That I would be keenly aware of his voice through the difficulty. But nobody really wants to embrace that. I certainly don't in my physical. 
So here's the question for us. Is it possible that we're missing sometimes what God is saying to us because we don't recognize the language that He's speaking? Because we've swung so far to the other side of the coin of all pain, all suffering is evil, avoided at all costs. God's not speaking through that. It's all from the devil. And again, I know Jesus came to give us life and life more abundantly. Stay balanced with me. Don't swing to one side or the other. We're going to stay in the middle here and hear what God wants to say on both sides. But is it possible because we're rejecting it and trying to get out of it as fast as possible because that's our human nature that we're missing something that God wants to do deep on the inside of us. That he wants to say to us. All through scripture, God uses suffering to make people who they are. To refine them, which we just sang about. The prophet Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet. Elijah battled depression and he was suicidal. David, who wrote a, a, a large number of the Psalms, he faced tragedy and pain again and again. Some of it was self-inflicted, but over and over again, he lived a life of pain and suffering. I mean, did you know that half to two-thirds of the Psalms are actually laments? A lament is a passionate expression of grief or sorrow. Thank God David usually flips it around. It's like, but my God is able and my God is strong enough. And his faith was deep and it was grounded. That even in the midst of, of fighting for his life physically with enemies surrounding him, not metaphoric enemies, but people that wanted to literally cut his head off, he still was rooted and grounded. I want to briefly turn our attention to one of the ancient fathers of our faith who certainly dealt with his share of sorrow. And it's in the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus, we're introduced to Moses. The Israelites, the children of Israel, were slaves. And Exodus 1 tells us that they were oppressed and that they had bitter lives. But regardless of their oppression, they continued to multiply. The Bible actually says the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. I mean, there's a sermon about pain in that verse all by itself. But as a form of population control, they decided that they were going to kill all of the baby boys. And so Moses was born during this time when the king of Egypt had decreed, his name, not his name, but they called him Pharaoh. Right? So Pharaoh had decreed that every Hebrew boy born would be thrown into the Nile River. But after Moses was born, his mom hid him. She hid him for three months until he couldn't be hidden any longer. And then she made a basket. She put him in the water. She put this you know, tar and pitch around the basket and floated him down to where Pharaoh's daughter was. Pharaoh's daughter was out bathing or whatever. She finds the basket and the baby. And she adopts Moses into her house. She raises him as her own. So he grew up in the palace while his people were slaves. And when he was older, he saw an Egyptian taskmaster... He was beating one of his fellow Hebrews and he took matters into his own hands and he killed the taskmaster. The next day, he realizes that this murder wasn't a secret and so he runs for his life. And Moses is gone for 40 years. Now, during that time, he gets married, has kids, etc. That's the cliff notes of Exodus kind of 1 and 2 leading up to where we're going to pick up the story. Exodus chapter 3, uh, beginning in verse 1. And it says, Now Moses was tending to the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. And Moses said that, uh, Moses went, I'm sorry, Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. And so Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. <laughs> I think that's funny. Sorry to bother you. <laughs> When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. 
He said, do not come any closer. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And then he said, I, this is God talking. He says, then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. And the Lord said to him, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. And so I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Again, I'm not going to read any further than that today. I encourage you to read this passage on your own. It's an incredible story and just a picture of God's faithfulness of how He comes to rescue us. I love in particular verse 7 and 8. It says that God takes note when His people are suffering. So the idea of making room for God, of, of making room for pain and making room for God to speak is not to the exclusion of God because God is with us. He cares for us. Verse 7 says, He sees their misery and He's concerned about their suffering. There's never a moment in your life, no matter what you're facing, that God does not see it and He's not concerned with it. And He says that He's on the way to rescue them. God was answering the cry of those that were in pain by calling Moses. I want to go back to verse 1. We're going to spend a few minutes in verse 1. I want to look at several words that are in this verse. Um, Look at the Hebrew meaning of them. If you've been around any length of time, I you know that I like to just kind of dig into those words, see what they mean. It's kind of like a, a treasure hunt, so to speak. There's all kinds of hidden things that you can find out. Uh, in verse 1, it says, Now Moses was sending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Hor of the mountain of God. Jethro, who was his father-in-law, his name means his abundance. Or remainder, excess, excellence. The implication is more than enough, the remainder. He's got, he's got enough and then more. Right? So Jethro is an, is an implication of more than enough. Priest means principal officer, chief ruler. Okay, So he's in charge. And then Midian, he is the priest of Midian. He's in charge of Midian. The name Midian or the word Midian means strife or contention. And so Moses is working for someone, Jethro, who has more than enough. And Jethro was literally the chief ruler of strife. He's the chief ruler of strife or the chief ruler of contention. Have you ever been in that situation before? You're working for someone who has more than enough. And every time you're there, there's just strife and contention. It's like they are the chief ruler of all of that. Serving or working for someone who has an abundance. But it's like they've lost touch with reality. Or they've forgotten what it's like to be in the shoes of everyday people. And so when you're in this environment, you feel stress and tension. And maybe it's because inside of you, you feel this call or desire, or you feel a dream to go and do and be what God has called you to do and be. And in this environment, all you feel is stress and, con- and contention and strife. It's like something is keeping you from your destiny. Something is pushing back against you every time you try to take a step. And it says that he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Hor of the mountain of God. All of these words are important. Far side means the part behind. The root of that is to delay 
or to hesitate, to tarry, or to remain behind. So here you are, you're in this situation, and there's stress, and there's contention, and it feels like, and now you're on the far side of things, and it feels like everything is being delayed. The promise that God placed in your heart is being delayed. The healing that you've been praying for is being delayed. The breakthrough that you've been hoping for and believing for, it's delayed. Right? So on one side, there's contention, and on the other side, everything's being delayed, and it feels like you're remaining behind while everyone else is moving forward. Have you ever felt that way before? Like you've been putting in the time and somebody else gets a promotion ahead of you. Or you've been you know, just, just spending time with God, and you feel his, and sense his favor in your life, and then it just doesn't feel like you're moving forward while everybody else is moving into a new place with God. I remember we're talking about God speaking to us through pain. Moses is living a life of pain. He was protected by God through his mother as a baby when all the other baby boys were being thrown into the Nile River. He lives a life of tension, of seeing his people being abused, but escaping the abuse himself. Right? He no doubt was experiencing some sort of survivor's grief. Like, why are they being beaten and mistreated and persecuted and victimized while I'm living my best life in the palace? And then one day he'd had enough, all of the tension, all of the inner rage, all of the emotion that had been pent up for all those years and he explodes and he kills this Egyptian slave master. So in fear, he runs for his life into the des- desert where he lived a life as a fugitive for 40 years. The Bible says the far side of the wilderness, which means delayed. Undoubtedly, he feels delayed. Undoubtedly, he feels like everything is moving forward. Life is moving forward. And here I am stuck on the backside of this desert. The word wilderness means wilderness. And it means this. (laughs) Uninhabited land. But the root, and watch this. The root of this is important. We've talked about this before, but it's worth repeating. The root of wilderness means to speak, to declare, to converse, to command, and to promise. He's on the backside of the desert. And when he reaches this place in the wilderness, it's actually the place where God can begin to speak. It's the place of conversation. It's the place of promise. See, when you and I find ourselves in the midst of pain, feeling as though we've been left behind, as the life and others and opportunity are just passing us by, That's actually the place where God can speak to us. If you feel like you are in a season of wilderness, listen for the voice of God. That's where he wants to speak to you. It goes on, verse 2, it says, There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames, in flames of fire from within a bush. And Moses saw that the bush was on fire and it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I'll go over and see the strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. And when the Lord saw what he had gone through, God called him from within the bush. And Moses said, or then he tells him to take off your shoes, take off your sandals, for this is holy ground. Now, when we read through this, again, bush just means bush. But if you look up the Hebrew word, it actually means thorny bush. That's significant. I mean, anybody ever got hung on some briars when you're walking through the woods? Anybody ever reached to grab something and, and it's got briars or thorns in it? And you, you know what I mean? Thorns are a representation of pain. 
So God wasn't just speaking through a bush. He was speaking through a thorny bush. It says, when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from where? Within the bush. God wants to speak to us from within our pain. Even though it doesn't feel like it when you're in the midst of it, the pain that you experience can become holy ground as God begins to speak. Because as you come out on the other side of whatever it is that you're dealing with, you can look back on those moments and say, that was holy That thing that I went through that I hated, that thing that I went through that was so devastating was a holy moment because that's where God reached in through my pain, picked me up, and took me to the other side. C.S. Lewis says this, God whispers to us in our pleasures, but He shouts in our pain. Nothing drives us to our knees faster than pain. Nothing has the ability to make us cry out to God like pain. Again, I don't believe that God causes pain. Jesus said he came to give us life and that the thief, which is Satan, came to kill, to steal, steal, and to destroy. And scripture tells us that every good and perfect gift comes from God. But at the same time, that doesn't eliminate pain from our lives. It doesn't eliminate the fact that God allows it to happen. If I'm completely transparent, I don't understand all of that. Other than to say we live in a fallen world. Sin is all around. And until we're raptured or die to go be with Jesus, we're going to have to face the things that are in the world. But I want to tell you today that if you feel like you're in the wilderness, that's the place that God can begin to speak. And just like God spoke to Moses from within the thorns, God also wants to speak to you from within the thorns, from within the pain. What thorn are you facing right now that God may want to speak through? Here's the good news, is that God can redeem all of our painful moments to bring new life. The central truth of Christianity is that Jesus died a real death on the cross and rose from the dead. He is risen. See, this is what enables us to affirm that our losses and our endings and our pain are gateways to new beginnings. Because even when we can't see how anything good can come from our pain, our pain is real, but so is the resurrection. God brings from our losses and our pain. He brings resurrection and new life. Jesus said in John 12, 24, Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. You see, what what, what happens is... it, it. Sometimes what appears to be a catastrophic ending becomes instead the foundation of a new beginning. But only if we follow God's pathway through our grief. God is inviting us to trust Him. He's inviting us to trust Him with the many small deaths that we'll have to experience in our lives because there can be no resurrection if there's no death. Author and pastor... Pete Scazzaro says this in his book, Emotionally Healthy Discipleship. Loss cuts something out of us, much as a gardener cuts back a plant for greater fruit. God does something in us through the fire of sorrow that enlarges our capacity to wait and surrender to His will. This breaking detaches and empties us so that He can fill us with His life. Philippians 3, 10. I want to know Christ 
later you can come and play. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. What is Paul saying? I want to know the power of his resurrection. But in order to truly know that, I have to participate in his sufferings and become like him in his death. Then somehow I will attain the resurrection from the dead. And I know that this is in part referring to our ultimate resurrection, when we will live forever in our new eternal bodies. But I also believe that if we will make room for pain and the voice of God to speak through our losses and speak through our grief, that we can also experience resurrection here on earth. The Bible says that the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells on the inside of us. I was talking to Katie about this message yesterday. I was like, I, you know, I'm, I got this, this topic and this idea. I don't even know if I'm, if I'm bringing more, more to the problem or if I'm bringing any kind of solution. Like it's so deep and complicated and you have to be so careful that you're not flinging on one side of the pendulum to the other. That all suffering, God just wants me to suffer. I can't even tell a joke to there's no suffering. I don't, I just reject all of it. Like there's somewhere in the middle, there's a balance where God wants to speak to us through all of that. Look, I know the promises of God are true and the word of God is true and he will take care of us and we speak those things. And we've been talking about that the last few weeks, about the healing that God wants to bring through us. So if you're in the middle of a wilderness season, don't allow this message of making room for God to speak through our pain, to to neglect or to, 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 to make that null and void because God wants to bring the healing. But while you're walking out your healing, listen for the voice of God so that he can bring life change. And you can look back on that moment and say, that was holy ground because that's where my life changed forever. You can look back on the loss. Something that felt so tragic can become the the ground, the, the breeding ground for new life. The death of a marriage that, that fell, fell apart because of divorce or because of infidelity and the whole thing fell apart and it was so painful and it hurt so bad. But on the other side of it, God can bring new life. I've been there. I've lived that. I've lived those moments where you just, it feels like your world is coming to an end and you're just going to die and you're not going to make it. And if I can be honest, I didn't have a reference point for God speaking to me through that. All I wanted was out as soon as I could get out of it. Get me out, get me out, get me out. And I probably missed a lot of what God wanted to speak to me in those moments. But on the other side, God brings new life and joy and peace. No matter what it is that you face, no matter what death it is, things that you, dreams that you've had to allow to die, bankruptcies where things have been repossessed and it felt like you could never get to the other side. But when you get to the other side, God brings new life. I think we just, we get in our Christian circles and we just try to pretend that everything's okay. Which speaks to one of our core values here. Look, it's okay to not be okay. Authenticity. Take your mask off. Take your mask off and let people see the real you. What is it that you're hurting? Where are you hurting? Where are you broken? Where is it that God wants to speak to? And let's, let's walk through this journey together. Where is it that God wants to breathe new life? He wants to speak to you through 
through the pain. I think a lot of times we just don't have reference to how to grieve. We don't know how to grieve when we lose something. Whether that's a catastrophic loss or just a job change. Where God, you've spent 20 years somewhere and God's moving you into, into blessing and favor. You're moving into a new season, but there's still grief because you've invested 20 years somewhere. And for whatever, if you feel sad because you're leaving something, all of a sudden you're not embracing the new that God wants to do. What are you talking? We are not giving people permission to grieve their losses. I think if we can learn how to grieve properly and we can learn how to embrace the voice of the Lord in the pain. Look, again, I don't believe that God just sends pain on his children. I wouldn't do that to my kids. I don't believe that he does that to us. But Paul is clear that God, we all, I mean, we love to quote that all things work together for the good of them that love God. But uh, we, we quote this stuff all the time. Every funeral you've ever been to, every time something bad happens, everybody's real quick to quote Romans 8. God's going to work it out for your good, brother. Listen, he can't work it out for your good if you haven't walked through some pain. I love that quote, and he says that when we go through the fire of sorrow, that it enlarges our capacity to wait and surrender to His will. Because honestly, the pain and the things that we go through that we don't understand, we can't control it. And the fighting against it, I think is self. It's, that's what God wants to crucify in us to where we just yield everything to the Father and say, I can't, I can't do this on my own. Here you take it. It's a, it's a we've talked about this in the past, but it's a cutting of, of soul ties, of, of connections we have to people and things. David gave a word last week where he talked about the sword of the Spirit, cutting those chains. We have to cut those things and release them to the Lord so that God can bring ultimate healing. Would you bow your heads just for a moment? On behalf of Pastor Randy and the entire staff at Everyday Church, we'd like to thank you for joining us today. For more information on the church, please visit us at everydaychurch.xyz. 